Lord God, thank you again for the word. And thank you for the spirit of life who breathes life into us through this word, a living and active word. Now, be with us in this moment, in this time. Penetrate through the thoughts of our own hearts, the distractions of our own minds, so that we, together as your people, can sit before you today, can consider life and the promotion of it, and rejoice in Christ. We pray in his name. Amen. I am basically a good person. After all, I've never killed anyone. Did you ever think like that? Before, before I was a Christian, that was my own self-assessment. I took one of the commands of the Ten Commandments, just one. The, the rest were probably, for me at that time, a little fuzzy. I probably didn't know them all by heart in early days, and, uh, and regardless of whether or not I knew them, I certainly didn't obey them. As much as I thought perhaps this one commandment was one that I had fulfilled, one that I had obeyed, I'd never killed anybody, and therefore I felt kind of good about myself. I'm not like other people who kill people. I don't do that. I'm okay. I'm okay before men. I'm okay before God. It wasn't until later, sometime later, probably after I became a Christian, that I first read, heard, reflected on those words of Jesus that we read earlier from the Sermon on the Mount and how he handled this commandment. Who wants to think about that? Certainly not as a non-Christian. You don't want to think about what Jesus said about this commandment. You want to keep it as clear and as straightforward and as simple as possible. Don't kill. I can understand that. Don't give me all this other stuff about anger and calling someone a fool. Six letters and a whole world of implication and application for us, and not only for us, but for anyone who's ever considered this command, anyone who's ever tried to live by this and through this has to think through all of the various situations of life. So I ask you this question. You're the preacher. What do you want to preach on today? Or what do you want me to preach on today? You want to talk about euthanasia? You want to talk about suicide? About doctor-assisted suicide? We could talk, if you like, about capital punishment. Could preach on abortion. Could preach on war, the idea of just war. Could talk about self-defense. Could talk about gun control. Could talk about gun rights. We could talk about violence in society. We could talk about our own culture and circumstances of justice and injustice in our own culture as it relates to do not kill. We could talk about the role of the state and the role of the individual with reference to this particular commandment. We could explore the differences between murder and manslaughter and voluntary manslaughter and involuntary manslaughter and accidental death. We could talk about uh, nuclear warfare and what are the implications of the proliferation of nuclear weapons. All of these things can be talked about with reference to this command. And a decent book on ethics or on the Ten Commandments will probably lead you in a discussion at this point on a variety of those issues. So many things relate to these words. 
In fact, you could turn, and you're probably not opening your Bibles right now to Exodus 20, but if you were, I would tell you not to turn there anyway. You could probably turn one page in your Bible, Exodus 21, and you could find there a whole list of situations which are trying to say this is how you have to apply this command in this particular situation. This is what the law says. These are the circumstances by which it can be or shouldn't be applied and the extent. In fact, I was going to do that. I was going to read it for us, but as soon as you read it, it is incredibly complex. And to even read it would require more explanation than we would have time for this morning. But here's my summary for today. All of those issues relate. Here's my summary. This is a commandment for life that brings death for the life of the world. This is a commandment for life that brings death for the life of the world. First, then, this is a commandment for life. This command does not start with man. None of the commandments actually start with man. They all start with, I am the Lord your God, and this one does as well. He is the living God. He is. This is his great declaration from the book of Exodus. The mountain is shaking. The voice is speaking. The writing of God is taking place. And God has revealed himself as, I am. I am the existing God. I'm the living God. I alone possess and have immortality. All other life is derivative life. All other life is created life. Whether it's birds, trees, bees, fleas, we exist because life has been given to us. Life has been breathed into us. God has given life to the world, and the living God sustains life in the world. He both gives it, and in his providential care, he sustains our lives and the life of all things. Scripture, therefore, upholds and supports the simple idea of a respect for life, a sanctity of life, a dignity to life. But, and we have to say this right at this point, it is an ordered respect for life. It begins with God. And all of the heavenly hosts. And then with mankind, humanity is the image bearer of God. Animals, plants. It's an ordered respect. As I was uh, thinking about this, I thought of the book of Jonah. And you remember the very end of the book of Jonah. Jonah is frustrated with God's activities in Nineveh. And I'm just going to read it for you. It's familiar enough. Jonah chapter 4. Don't turn to it. Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so it withered. Now, I didn't put worms on that scale. So wherever you want to put worms, somewhere they fit in the, in the hierarchy of, 
of ordering and respecting life. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint, and he asked that he might die and said, It is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also, last word from the book of Jonah, much cattle. Much cattle. It's a plant. It's a worm. It's a city with 120,000 people and cattle. That's God's idea. God, God trying to get through to Jonah. Jonah, understand a respect for life here and get your ordering straight. Get your priorities straight about what I am doing in this world. I am the God who gives life, the God who sustains life. So here, if you'd like this, if you'd like a very clear, well, I hope clear, way of understanding and categorizing the requirements of this commandment, you shall not murder, I think you can find it. It's, it's said basically in our catechisms. But to obey this command, here's what you should do. You should protect, preserve, and promote life. To protect recognizes the precariousness of life in this world. Death is afoot in the world. Life requires protection, and that is not only a physical death that is afoot in the world, but a spiritual death as well. And all of the things that cause that death, that cause the murder, the anger, the hatred, the envy, the jealousy, the covetousness, the selfish ambition and all of the thoughts and words and actions that flow from those things, we have to protect against those enemies of life. They cause death, they cause murder, and they actually then serve to produce it in others as well. You and I have received from the Lord spiritual armor. And we have received from the Lord spiritual armor to fight for life and protect it by all lawful means. To preserve life is perhaps a little bit less dramatic than the idea of protecting life, but it is of more substance in terms of the things that we do day to day. To preserve life is to be doing for God and with God, that which he does. God sustains life, and we are to do the very things, the simple things that sustain life as well. So they're the simple things that you do. Going to work, cleaning the house, preparing the meals, taking care of a crying baby in the middle of the night, keeping your finances in order, providing shelter. This is normal, ordinary stuff. 
we're describing it there in human terms, but understand that that is the same stuff that God does in his providential care for the world. Now, we're not going to turn there. We've looked at passages like this before. Look at Psalm 104 later if you would like to. But God does exactly this, providing shelter, providing food, providing, providing the basic necessities of life day by day for rock badgers, for ravens, for lilies, and I suppose for worms in the book of Jonah as well. He takes care of the world. And the fact that you and I are doing that with God in and of itself brings dignity to these little ordinary aspects of life, preserving life. Because what you and I are doing when we do those simple things is we're imaging our Creator. That's what He does. He created the world and He sustains the world. You and I are part of the preserving of the world through the things that we do day in, day out. And then there is to promote life. To promote life is, of course, to reproduce physically and spiritually as God provides opportunity. But it is also to live creatively in this world that God has given to us, joyfully in this world, responsibly, beautifully, abundantly, within the space and the situation that God has provided for us, be that space ever so small. Now, if God has provided you with a grand estate, with a night's place in which you may live and promote life, praise God, glad for you. If he's provided you with a small apartment, it is there in that context in which you have the opportunity to promote life. If God has put us in a prison cell, it is there that we have the opportunity to promote life by singing hymns in the middle of the night. Wherever he's put us, whatever the circumstances may be, we have the opportunity to promote life. We have the opportunity to engage our mind, our body, our soul, our hands in things that are good, in things that are true, in things that are right, in developing drugs for the easing of the pain of mankind, and in making art for the glory of God, in preparing beautiful meals, and most of all, in coming together for worship. This is a life exercise. This is a celebration of life exercise. We live before any of those things, before any of the good things, the ordinary things that I just listed. We are created for and live for the opportunity to give praise. That is what the psalmist rejoiced in in Psalm 118, where we began. I shall not die, but I shall live and give thanks to the Lord. First line of the opening hymn today, let all things now living, a song of thanksgiving. That's what you're living for. Don't get confused. Don't put this as second priority somewhere. You're living for this. It's what you have been given life for, and all other things flow through it and from it. So this is a command for life. Protect it, preserve it, promote it. God is for life. And in him and through him, we too should be for life. But this command for life brings death. Ironically enough, this is a killer of a command. Let me explain. 
The penalty for violating this command is death. Capital punishment is the penalty for violating it. Now, if you've been with us, actually, that's been the, that's been the penalty for the last couple of commands as well. It's the command for idolatry. It's the, excuse me, the penalty. It's the penalty for taking the Lord's name in vain. It's the penalty for breaking the Sabbath. It's the penalty for cursing your mother and father. At least for Israel it was. You curse your mother and father. You hit your mother and father and you shall die. I'm going to turn one page. 21.14 in Exodus says this. But if a man willfully attacks another man to kill him by cunning, you shall take him away from my altar that he may die. Take him away. He's done it willfully, cunningly, planned it. He shall die. That is the law of God. And it is the law of God and was the law of God prior to the giving of this particular administration of the law. At the time of Noah, God set this forth as a principle for the protection of the human race. The letter kills this command. It kills. Paul says the letter kills. Maybe he could have said the six letters kill. And no matter what the world says to us or about this, it is not inconsistent to have a high view of life and for God to say whoever takes a person's life willfully, intentionally, unlawfully shall be put to death. The Bible upholds that especially and particularly for Israel in the Old Covenant. That is the penalty for any unlawful, unjustified, unsanctioned taking of life. But Jesus makes it worse. As he digs out the heart meaning, the extended application of this commandment, he doesn't threaten with And here's an interesting turn of phrase. He doesn't threaten with mere capital punishment. He threatens with eternal damnation. He goes beyond the first death to the second death, liable to the fires of hell for things like anger and insults and calling someone a fool. It is theoretically possible to read through the Ten Commandments themselves, as given either in Exodus 20 or Deuteronomy chapter 5, and feel pretty good about yourself. I say theoretically possible, because we have the story of the rich young ruler who came up to Jesus, right? What what must I do to inherit eternal life? Obey the commands. But thank you, I've got those. Honor your father and mother, all, all these things, I've got them. So it's theoretically possible, if unimaginable, it's theoretically possible to feel good about yourself reading the Ten Commandments. I suggest to you that it is not possible to either read or to listen to a reading of the Sermon on the Mount and feel good about yourself. It's not possible to listen to the words that Rex read for us earlier in the service, to hear those final words, at least of chapter 5, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect, and sit back and go, okay, I'm all right. 
I'm in good shape then. If that's all that's required, I'm okay. I'm safe in this world. You can't do it. You can't read it that way. No one can. You can't do it. You're not okay. I'm not okay. We're not okay. Nobody's okay when they stand before the holiness presented by Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. What the Sermon on the Mount tells us is this. On our own, we're a bunch of lust-driven, dishonoring murderers who are on a highway to hell. That's what we should feel like, at least when we first read the Sermon on the Mount. When we first hear these words from Jesus, we should feel dead. When you hear those words from Jesus, you realize that the sword of Damocles is not merely tenderly and gently swaying above your head, but you realize that the string that holds the sword has been cut. The sword has fallen, and the sword has pierced you right in the heart. As great as the law is, think of what an advancement this is for the people of God in terms of their knowledge of God, how they love God, how they love one another. As foundational as the law of God is, as important as it is, as worth studying and preaching on as it is, as we're doing, Paul will take this entire Mosaic administration. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, he will refer to it as a ministry of condemnation, as a ministry of death. Thus, this command for life, protect it, preserve it, promote it, don't kill, no kill. This command for life brings death, and it kills us for the life of the world. Jesus said this, I am the bread of life. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he'll live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. You will never, ever, ever live or survive by obedience to the command, you shall not kill. You will not be able to protect, to preserve, to promote your own life, let alone the life of your neighbor. That is why this very command for life has sealed for us our death sentence because it kills. Imagine a conversation about this very thing. The Father of life says to his eternal, only begotten, ever-living Son, Son, these people must die. Our justice, our holiness demands it, for they have violated our law of life. Will you go 
and allow me to pierce you with the sword that rightly ought be killing them. Will you die for them? Will you forgive them for all of their murderous thoughts, words, and deeds? Will you die for them that they might live with us? And in love, the son says, I will as you will. And the Father and the Son turn to the ever-living Spirit and say to the Spirit, in the name of Jesus, will you go? Will you go in their midst, Spirit of life, breath of life? Will you take the sword out of their cold, dead hearts and breathe new life into them and fill them in the name of Jesus? And the Spirit of life responds, I will as you will, Father of life. And so, for the life of the world, the ever-living one took the sentence of the murderer upon himself. And he died. He was killed. Capital punishment was executed upon him unjustly. He took flesh so he could die as the murderer, the one guilty of breaking the Sixth Commandment. And raise the flesh up. Because death was not strong enough to hold the author of life. He rose and he ascended and he sent forth the spirit of life. He breathed out the spirit of life back into a world of death. That there might be no condemnation. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free from the law of sin and death. The law of the spirit of life set you free. You and I dare not trust that we have kept the sixth commandment, for we have not. Now please hear something. Quick parentheses. I do not mean to flatten out disobedience to this command. There is violence, there is viciousness, there is evil in this world. There is death and killing that takes place in this world that is vicious and wrong. But what I do mean to say is that as God takes the degree of our disobedience into account, he finds us all disobedient to this command. Granted, disobedience is different in kind. But nevertheless, the words of Jesus say that we are all guilty of disobedience. Trust in the one Jesus Christ 
the living one who has come that you might have life and have life abundantly. The one who can forgive the countless ways that you and I have disobeyed this command. How have you disobeyed the command for life? They're countless, are they not? This is the one. This is the one who can forgive all of that because he took the place of the murderer and was killed in your stead. And then by the power of the new life of the Spirit within us, a transformation takes place and a call is re-given to a now reborn, reanimated people to say, protect, preserve, and promote life in this world. Love your neighbor. And of course, Jesus expands the idea of love your neighbor. If you read that Leviticus passage or heard me read it carefully, the exhortation to love your neighbor in Leviticus chapter 19 applies to those within the covenant community. It's not talking about people outside of Israel. It's talking about Israel, your brother, your fellow Israelite. Jesus says, I've got more for you. Love your enemy. Love that one as well. Pray for those who persecute you. However much this command may speak to great moral issues in any culture, great political issues in any culture, here's the reality. We don't have much of a voice in what takes place in the culture, in the power systems that are around us. We have a little bit of a voice. We have the opportunity to pray. In our society, we have the opportunity to speak the opportunity to write, and the opportunity to vote. Indeed, we have all those things, but many of them are small. Where the rubber meets the road for you and me with this commandment, however, is not how do I change the power structures of the world, but is there an opportunity for me to serve with young lives? Take care of babies who were born unexpectedly in difficult situations to adopt, to care for our parents when, instead of changing our diaper, we find the need to change their diaper, to go to Spring Mill, to love our neighbor, to pray for our enemy. In the New Covenant, the authority of the sword does not belong to the church. It belongs to the state was given to Israel. Israel was those two things fused together. For us, it has been separated. Jesus will return with a sword protruding from his mouth, but not now. To us belongs the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, through which we possess, we pursue, and we proclaim the death and the life of Jesus Christ for the sake of the world. Let's pray together.